Hi, my name is Bethany Tolley, and this is my blog, The Doctrine Lady Blog. If you would like to read the text for any of my podcasts, please visit my website, thedoctrinelady.blog. And now for today's podcast. A crisis of faith is a good thing, and I'll tell you why. Imagine you're driving down a road in your car. To your best knowledge, your car is in good condition, but suddenly the car breaks down and you are stranded on the side of the road. Of course, you are upset. (laughs) You've probably shed tears. You may have pounded on the wheel or gotten out of the car and kicked the tires or the bumper. Because you're stuck, the car you thought was in good shape has now failed you. What do you do? In such a situation, you fundamentally have two choices. First, you can call a mechanic and get help diagnosing the problem so that the car can be repaired and you can keep on driving. Or second, you can leave the car on the side of the road and walk away, determined to finish your journey on foot, which lasts until you become broken. Which would you choose? Now, imagine that car is your faith. You thought it was doing fine. Then one day, something happens and it breaks down. You are really on the side of the road, unable to progress spiritually because your faith is broken. What do you do? First, you can call the mechanic, in other words, your heavenly father, and get help diagnosing the problem so that you can get back on the road to progressing spiritually. Or secondly, you can leave your faith broken and try to progress without it until not only your faith is broken, but you are too. Which do you choose? When I was younger, I remember getting the idea, whether or not it was actually verbally taught to me that way, I got the idea, that if I kept God's commandments, life would go fairly smoothly according to plan, and (laughs) that I'd have little trouble. I am quite certain that in some way, some church leader or other said to me, if you get married in the temple, everything will work out great, and other such generalizations, which what they likely meant was, if you keep the commandments, you'll have the comfort and peace you need to get through all of life's struggles. But that's not how I interpreted whatever it was they did say. I do not fault them. But 20 plus years ago, gospel generalizations were exceedingly common, and they are still more common than they should be today. Now, realistically, if I'd taken the time to listen to my parents, who I'm certain never taught me any such generalizations, if I'd paid closer attention to the examples all around me, measured what I'd heard, to my experiences in reading the stories in the scriptures, I would never have allowed such a ridiculous notion to take root in my brain. Does not the story of Job clearly illustrate that the most righteous often suffer the most trial and struggles? To say nothing of Christ, yet somehow I failed to grasp the incongruous nature of something I was beginning to believe and expect versus what I was actually being exposed to. I was creating a belief framework that wasn't accurate. Despite the evidence all around me, I think 
my youth and youthful blindness allowed me to create an expectation for life and religion based on very cursory and certainly not realistic sentiments. Many other such false expectations or beliefs plague many a religious soul. Though we are taught the scriptures and we read them in part, we somehow also fail to miss the fact that everyone the Lord calls to help him is flawed, often has to repent, and often makes mistakes. We get the idea that God's people, or at least minimally the leadership, are flawless and know and understand everything. We may also get the idea that since God has all the answers, that he will give them to us and church leadership without any effort or seeking on our part or their part. We believe incorrectly that we are entitled to all of God's knowledge simply because he has it. We may get the idea that people that go to church and sit so neatly dressed in the pews never have problems. We may assume that those who seem to be most spiritually and doctrinally in tune have never made grave mistakes. We may form the incorrect notion that at a certain age, doctrinal wisdom and ease of keeping the commandments will simply happen to us. We may form the silly idea that after a certain amount of time or trials that we will arrive spiritually and not have to work at it anymore. We may assume that studying the scriptures is something we have done, past tense, and that moving forward we will retain all the power and doctrine it once imparted to us. We may think that serving a mission will ensure we will never fall away from the truth. We may assume that getting married in the temple will ensure we never divorce. We may think and expect many incorrect and false things that have never been true and never will be, but for a time, we feel they are. Now, I want to talk about coping frameworks. When we have an expectation, we then often naturally form a psychological coping framework. This framework is a system of relating to our environment that we lean upon. We use it to make sense of the world. It defines how we relate to our family, friends, acquaintances, members, non-members, kids, co-workers, etc. It defines how we approach, plan, and execute our lives. We expect things to happen a certain way or to exist in a specific way. And thus, we define our lives around these expectations, whether they are true or false. The foundation of our coping framework is the expectation or belief. This foundation may not be solid, meaning true. If our expectation or belief is untrue and ultimately weak or unstable, then it will eventually crumble. It cannot stand because it is not true. For example, when we get married, we may make the assumption that our spouse has committed to us and therefore will remain faithful to us. We may expect some troubles, but that covenant and commitment creates a safety net around our fears. We stop worrying that we may lose someone. We begin to form even more specified frameworks around the larger one. We begin to develop natural ways of communicating with our committed spouse. We learn how to compromise and live with this other individual. We develop a framework for juggling work, hobbies, and other pursuits in relation to the larger marriage framework. And we base our framework on a fixed picture of our life. It does not usually have a lot of room for change. When changes happen, we have to break down pieces of our coping frameworks and replace them with new ones. Imagine now that your spouse cheats on you 
and or asks for an unexpected divorce when you thought everything was reasonably okay or at least workable. This causes a complete demolition of your main coping framework. Your belief that your marriage would ensure a commitment that you wouldn't lose this person from your life has been completely demolished from the foundation. Nothing in your life is left standing, or at least that's how it feels, because you developed all of your other coping frameworks on top of and around this main one. It changes how you relate to your friends and family. It changes how you relate to romantic relationships. It changes or has the potential to change every other framework because it is such a fundamental one. When a framework is demolished, we lose the ability to trust ourselves, our environment, and others. Everything we thought we once knew about ourselves, love, relationships, marriage, and this other person is thrown into question. And so we ask things like, did he or she ever love me? Am I lovable? What did I do to make them stop loving me? Where did I go wrong? Is love a real thing? Is what I thought was love actually something else? And the list of questions is endless. But the reality is, is that very little has actually changed. But because our foundational expectations have been thrown out the window, expectations built on false ideas, we begin to think everything is false. We begin to doubt everything because something we thought was true or expected to be true has ended up not to be true. This is how a crisis of faith begins. Our false expectations and beliefs are not sufficient to withstand the drastic change because they were never fully correct to begin with. When our foundational expectations and beliefs are true, drastic changes will certainly impact us deeply and we'll have struggles. But rarely does it result in a crisis of faith because our entire framework has not crumbled. Only some pieces of it waver, but not the solid, strong, bottom foundation. So, a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith happens when something we thought was true appears not to be true for a time or fails to be true, thus throwing into question our coping frameworks. And religious frameworks are incredibly foundational to personal identity, morality, goals, etc. Thus, when they seem to falter, we lose trust in past true experiences. We lose trust in our ability to tell what is true and false. We lose trust in others who may have influenced our beliefs and so forth. We may often get angry at, denounce, or lose trust in God. Religion which is such a powerful, fundamental feeling and belief system, is particularly prone to what we call crises of faith. But it usually has little to do with the actual religion itself and its doctrines, and far more with our incorrect perceptions, beliefs, and expectations formed in previous years, or passed on to us incorrectly by other churchgoers whom we have trusted. The doctrine itself is usually not the actual culprit. Sadly, it's us. We have formed an incorrect expectation or belief in our minds, and when it proves incorrect and our coping framework crumbles, we no longer know what to do. We no longer know how to cope or relate to our world. Crises of faith can also be caused by our own actions or by mortality and mortal weakness itself. 
we stray morally and end up in a situation we never saw ourselves in. Our framework hasn't planned for it. A natural disaster wipes out our home and or brings death into our family. Another person or persons who we have had absolute trust and vulnerability with betray us. We may begin to struggle with desires and inclinations that we never planned on having that have crumbled our spiritual life or plans. Suddenly, life is turned on its head and we, in spiritual vertigo, can't seem to find the right side up. So, how to get through a crisis of faith. I wouldn't have said this 20 years ago, but now I can. A crisis of faith is a good thing. Yes, a good thing. Why? Because it gives us a chance to correct our fundamental beliefs and expectations. It helps us to fix what is actually preventing us from spiritual progression. If we never come to a crisis, then we will never have the impetus to learn what we need to get straightened out so we can become more like God and to understand his plan better. If we never came to a crisis, then we could never create a solid foundation upon which to endure all that life throws at us. We would simply continue to struggle, suffer, and drop into despair. We need such a crisis to fix our foundation. We need not feel sheepish, ashamed, or even guilty at having a crisis of faith. We should own our crisis. Hey, I'm in a crisis of faith right now. (laughs) We need to tell God about it. Not because he doesn't already know, but because when we approach him with it, he can comfort us, give us peace, and help us to feel loved even as we are still trying to put ourselves back together. Once we own our crisis... We need to figure out what fundamental expectations or beliefs we have that have been turned on their head. What did we believe about God that has proven temporarily or or most certainly to be untrue or minimally that we have failed to understand correctly? What did we believe about members of the church that has proven temporarily or certainly to be untrue or that we have failed to understand correctly? Church leadership a certain prophet, the scriptures, our family, a particular person in our lives, temple covenants, our weaknesses, etc. I I can't list them all. Remember, the crisis of faith serves a purpose. It's that car broken down. Its purpose is for you to correct, ultimately change, and strengthen your coping framework. Its purpose is to help you find the truth that you're missing that's ultimately preventing you from becoming like God, from spiritually progressing. It is a necessary piece of your spiritual journey. It is a spiritual mountain you have to climb before you can press onward. After you identify the expectation or beliefs that have contributed to this crumbling of your critical coping framework, you can at last begin the healing process. The process of putting yourself back together and creating a solid, firm foundation. Seeking God and using His process of finding truth, you can begin to reevaluate your expectations and beliefs. You can heal what has previously eluded you and weakened your coping frameworks. You can assess the truth you've always known that's still true and replace what you falsely believed with correct knowledge. Doctrine and Covenants 50, 
verses 23 to 25 teach us, truth is light and light chases away darkness. I know it's cliche, but the truth will set you free. So now I want to talk about not abandoning something until you know what to abandon. Now, when we're afraid and our life appears to be in complete disarray, there is a tendency to want to abandon everything and rebuild from scratch. With few exceptions, this is an incredibly unwise thing to do. If it's only the plumbing infrastructure on your house that needs revamping, it makes little sense to take a wrecking ball to the entire edifice. The mental, emotional, spiritual, and mental cost does not heal the crisis damage and will likely only make it worse. If it's only one relationship that needs salvation or pruning, it makes little sense to burn the bridges all around you to to everyone else. If it's only one truth that you twisted, it makes little sense to discard all truth simply because you're afraid and in panic. Rash actions nearly always create more pain than peace. Spiritual suicide, which is what I like to call it, is hardly more practical than physical suicide. To metaphorically slit your wrists and spiritually die in a dramatic display will no more help you than actual death. And trust me, I know how it feels to wish you could die, literally. But the reality is that feeling passes. You feel like you want to die only because you've put your trust and faith in false doctrines and you feel stupid or foolish, ruined, unfixable. None of us like to feel the full, me least of all. But remember, your life is in shambles not because you've failed, but because at last you've come to a crossroads and a loving God wants you to build with a solid foundation. Let me say that again. Your life is in shambles not because you've failed, but because at last you've come to a crossroads and a loving God wants you to build with a solid foundation. You don't need to divorce everything in your life to rebuild anew. You need to visit each piece of your life and belief systems one at a time and carefully educate yourself on where the incorrect expectations and beliefs are. Many of our false religious beliefs or expectations are interconnected with very true ones. We must carefully extract the spiritual tumors from the very good spiritual tissue. The reality is that most of what we feel to be true and focused our life on is true. We need to realize that. If a few misunderstandings and false beliefs led us to places and problems we now feel ridiculous about or concerned about, we shouldn't beat ourselves up. We should be grateful that this crossroads, this crisis has finally come because we finally get to set ourselves straight and have a greater capacity to have joy, happiness, and peace in the future ahead of us. So here are the steps to getting through your crisis of faith. Number one, own it. (laughs) Own your crisis of faith. It is yours and it is a good thing. Two, and this is super important, take your crisis of faith to God. Number three, remember the purpose of a crisis of faith is to replace false beliefs or expectations with true ones. You're trying to fix that car, not abandon it on the side of the road. 
Number four, identify the false beliefs or expectations that led to your crisis of faith. Number five, don't abandon anything until you have carefully found the spiritual tumors and know what to let go. Number six, use God's process for truth-seeking. God's process for truth-seeking to replace your false beliefs or expectations with true ones. Okay, so let's finish up. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's scriptures Mormon 9.9. His truths never change. His doctrines never change. The only change is in us or in the way we hear, learn, or interpret his truths. And others may unwittingly lead us astray. We may fail to give heed and to truly listen or observe truth. In the end, however, it matters very little where the inconsistencies, misbeliefs, and incorrect expectations originated. It doesn't matter where. What truly matters in the end is if we use our crisis of faith to build a coping framework whose foundations are unshakable. We do that by building upon true doctrine, true beliefs, and accurate expectations. So a crisis of faith is a good thing. It's the beginning of a new day, a stronger foundation, and a life full of peace and joy. I'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to read more of the things that I blog about, please visit my website, thedoctrinelady.blog, and I'll see you there.